Peyton mentioned that next week, uh, a week from today, at 2 p.m., uh, we're going to serve the homeless uh, a meal, a Christmas meal. We're going to share them the bread of, of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also we're going to hand out to them coats and blankets that you guys have been bringing over the last couple of weeks. There's another opportunity to bring coats and blankets uh, anytime throughout the day or tonight, or I'm sorry, this Wednesday night at 6 p.m., bring them to our midweek service, and, um, and then that will give us a, a chance to sort them and, and organize them before our outreach on Sunday. So today, uh, we are going to meet back here at 2 p.m., and then we're just going to walk around and pass out flyers and invite the homeless to next Sunday. And also, we're going to meet this coming Saturday at 2 p.m. to walk around and pass out flyers, and then the outreach is a week from today, Sunday the 13th at 2 p.m. So come on, eat lunch, come on back today at 2 and, and join us. We'll probably go around Lancaster and just invite people. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open it with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we are going to begin in verse 8. I pray that nobody leaves the same. I pray that everybody is transformed by the peace of God. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Here we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at by night. And an angel of the, of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. See, Christmas is a fear not message. As we said before, as we said last week, the worst fates of Christmas is not that we commercialize it, as bad as that is, but that we trivialize it. God was born through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might not have fear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, watch this, our text verse right here, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom He is pleased. Peace on earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that, that we would tap into Your peace, that we would experience Your peace and let it transform us. In Jesus' name, Amen. How could peace on earth be declared when just uh, months after this particular declaration of peace on earth, King Herod, who had no peace in his heart and mind, and feared that the birth of this king, Jesus, would threaten his throne. Therefore, he had many, many babies, male children under the age of two years old in this vicinity executed. There was a mass genocide of toddlers. And yet, the angel declared peace on earth. Peace on earth. And yet, the Roman government still occupied the Palestinian area. Peace on earth, and yet there was still conflict, and there was still uh, religious corruption, 
political corruption, taxation corruption. There was still conflict, civil wars, wars, rumors of wars, peace on earth, and people still have leprosy. Peace on earth. And yet, 70 years from this point right here, in 70 AD, 1.1 million Jews will be killed by Rome and 100,000 Jews crucified when Rome besieges Jerusalem. How can the angel declare peace on earth? But we have to understand what kind of peace he's talking about. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, I don't give you peace like the world gives you. Be certain, my peace I leave with you, but it's an otherworldly peace. It's not natural, it's supernatural. It's not physical, it's spiritual. It's a different kind of peace altogether. And I came to be able to provide my peace. And here is the definition of the peace that God provides. Are you ready? Peace is not the subtraction of problems. Peace is the addition of God's power. Peace is not the subtraction of problems. Peace is the addition of power, a power that is greater than those problems. Moses knew of this peace, not by God removing the difficulty and the mountain of Pharaoh's hardened heart and his political and military power, but rather giving Moses a courage and boldness and authority greater than that of Pharaoh. David knew this peace, not by, not by God making sure that his path never had giants and obstacles that were bigger than himself, but by providing a supernatural power greater than those giants. As we just finished the study in Daniel, Daniel knew that peace, not by removing the threat of a lion's den, but by giving strength greater than the lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this peace, not by removing the threat of a fiery furnace, but by giving protection greater than the fiery furnace. And this is the kind of peace that was born in a manger in Bethlehem. A peace that is greater than the conflict and problems that could ever surface against us. Because if you look around, we have, we have riots, we have a pandemic, we have economic instability, we have uh, an economy and we have lockdowns that have decimated markets. We have health scenarios. Some of you have struggled with sickness. Some of you have lost your loved ones. And yet, the promise of peace is given to us, but not in the removal of promise, but not in the removal of problems, but in the addition of power that's greater than the problem. An addition of hope that is greater than the sorrow. An addition of forgiveness that is greater than the failure. An addition of strength that is greater than the threat. An addition of, of, of God's presence that is greater than the fear that is in the horizon. This is the kind of peace that we're invited to enter into this morning. And so the peace that God leaves and the peace that God provides, again, is not the subtraction of problems. It is the addition of power. And I want to give you three kinds of peace that God gives to us. The first is the peace with God. Peace with God. This is an eternal spiritual peace. The second is the peace of God. The peace of God. This is an, an internal, emotional peace. And the third is peace with others. And this is, an, this is an external, relational peace. Peace with God, peace of God, peace with others. An eternal, spiritual peace. Internal, emotional peace. External, relational peace. And know this, 
You can't go straight to third base. These pieces are cumulative. You have to go to first base, then to second, and then to third. In other words, you can't expect to have peace with others, relational peace, if you don't first have peace within yourself, internal emotional peace. And you can't expect to have this internal emotional peace unless you first have this eternal spiritual peace, this peace with God. But when you have peace with God, then you can have peace within yourself, and then you can have peace with others. So let's begin. Peace with God. How do we tap into, how do we experience this eternal spiritual peace? First of all, we have to know that apart from Jesus Christ, we are in enmity with God. There is hostility between our heart and Christ's heart. And this is how we have peace with God by trusting in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, watch this, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chris, let's hold this verse up for a moment. We've been justified by faith. That word justified theologically means justified never sinned. Justified. Just as I'd never sinned. We have peace with God. How? Through Watch this word, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know many of you are new in the faith and many of you are growing in the faith and we've baptized many people over the last couple of months. And so I want to encourage you to memorize this passage right here. There's going to be a few passages throughout our message. I'm going to encourage you to memorize. Memorize this one, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You think, well, I don't really, I'm not great at memorizing. Yes, you are. Here's the, let me give you three keys to memorizing. Are you ready? You want to write these down? Here it is. Review. 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 That's it. Review, review, review. Go over it, oh, and over it, and over it. You, you, you take the first natural clause, and, and you, review, you, re, you review it, you review it, until it's, it's in your heart, it's in your mind. And then you go into the second natural clause, review, 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 you've got it down, and then you go back and you put the two together, and then you go back to the third sort of natural cl- flow, and then you memorize that through review, 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 and then you put them all three together, and then you've memorized Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and it's in your heart, and it's in your mind. And it's an anchor to stabilize you when the enemy comes against you and says, how could God love you? How could you possibly think that you're going to heaven? How could God ever use you again? And you reviewed, reviewed, reviewed. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. So instead of, instead of going back into sin and instead of um, just not going around the assembly until you feel more worthy and instead of, instead of allowing your Bible to collect dust because you think that God doesn't want anything to do with you, you have the Word of God, the truth in your heart And in your mind, I have peace with God because I'm justified by Jesus Christ through faith in what He did for me on the cross. So let me ask you this question. What is the moment of peace with God? For example, before we became a Christian, it's not that we were just bad and we needed to be better. It's that we were dead And we needed someone to make us alive. Let me repeat that. Before you became a Christian, it's not that you were just bad and you needed to be better. You were dead and you needed to be alive. So when you were dead in your sins, 
anything you tried to do to have peace with God were dead works and you're still dead. But it's through being born again that the Spirit of Christ enters your heart, quickens your heart, your sins are forgiven, you have a new nature, you're a new creation, and you're transferred from being dead to being alive forever. You're transferred from having enmity towards God to being a friend of God. Your eternal address is rewritten. At what point does this transformation take place? In a word... Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You have been justified by faith. That's the moment of transformation. Therefore, since we have been justified by being sober for 10 years and going to church for a couple of years. It doesn't say that. Therefore, since you have been justified by completing that confirmation class. It doesn't say that. Therefore, since you have been justified by getting baptized. It doesn't say that. Does baptism have its place? Yes, as a testimony of your salvation, not as a cause of your salvation. Therefore, you have been justified by doing many good works. It doesn't say that. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith. Faith in what? Because even the demons believe and tremble. Faith that Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead three days later and will give salvation to sinners? Again, even demons believe that intellectually and they tremble. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus died not only for the sins of the world, faith that Jesus died for you personally. That is saving faith. That is the decisive moment that one is immediately raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Their heart is transformed. They're a new creation. Their sins are forgiven. They're covered with the righteousness of God. Their eternal address is rewritten. They are born again at the decisive moment of faith. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus died for the sins of the world? Deeper, more personal, more intimate. Faith that Jesus died for you Personally, in a word, this can be summarized with trust. You trust that Jesus paid for your sins personally on the cross. And at this decisive moment of faith, you are born again. You say, prove it. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. At what moment does like the flash of lightning, the Holy Spirit enter your heart and forgive your sins, clothe you with the righteousness of God, give you a new nature, adopt you into the family of God and rewrite your eternal address the moment you believe personally upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace. What is grace? Grace is what God does for you. For it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. What is works? Works is your own doing. Works are what you do for God. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. It is a gift of God, lest anybody should boast. Grace is what 
God does for you through the cross. Works are what you do for God. It is by grace, what Jesus does for us, that we are saved, not by works, what we do for Jesus. Well, don't works have a place? Yes, but it's the result of our salvation, not the cause of our salvation. If somebody is never transformed, they were never born again. If somebody was never transformed, they were never born again, they can be a pastor in a church and they will be hell bound. But doesn't go to church? Doesn't going to church make you a Christian? Going to church no more causes you to be a Christian. Good works no more causes you to be saved than sitting in your garage will cause you to become a car. Or holding your breath underwater or even getting a snorkel and staying underwater for hours. You will never become a fish. It is more likely that you can become a car by sitting in your garage or become a fish by getting a snorkel and staying under your pool than a dead person can be quickened unto life through their works. But transformation is essential. And this is nothing that you can do to yourself. It is what God does for you at the moment of decisive personal, trusting faith in what Jesus' work for you on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, so did your sin. And when Jesus rose from the grave, so did your hope. And we receive this hope when we trust in Christ personally. And this is God's work. He gives us a new heart. We are born again. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, God promises... I will remove from you a heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to follow me. It's a result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. And at the moment we trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, at that moment we have peace with God. Peace with God. And as a result of peace with God, we have the peace of God. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 through 7 explains how we walk in the peace of God. Are you ready? And I'm about to read the most disobeyed command to Christians in all of scripture right here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Let's push pause right here for a moment. This is the most disobeyed verse. This is the most disregarded verse, command in all of Scripture. It's not don't commit adultery. You you know you're not supposed to commit adultery. It's not don't murder. You you, you know you're not supposed to murder. It's not don't don't have any other gods before the the one true living God. You, you, You know you're not supposed to commit idolatry. This is the most disobeyed, disregarded, And I think one of the most important promises and commands. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. But we disregard it and what do we do? We worry about everything and we pray about nothing. But watch the promise associated with being obedient to this command. If we Worry about nothing. And if we pray about everything, then in verse 7, 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guys, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and through 7. Underline it in your Bible. Write it in your margin. Memorize this throughout the week. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. And as a result of that, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But what do Christians do? We busy ourselves with ministry, and we should be about the Father's business, and we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we should be devoted to one another and devoted to to the ministry. I'm not disregarding that, but I'm just saying we tend to busy ourselves about ministry. We busy ourselves about, uh, about obligations, responsibilities. We busy ourselves... We worry about everything as if the world rests upon our shoulders. We pray about nothing and we don't have peace. We have anxiety. We have depression. And so we try to outsource the peace of God through a pill. Or we outsource the peace of God through a bottle. Or we outsource the peace of God through trying to store up for ourselves comforts and luxuries and securities in this world. Or even outsource the peace of God through some escapist sin in this world. And what happens? As a result, Christians have greater anxiety than before they started. This morning, I want to encourage you, I want to ask you to repent of worrying about everything, praying about nothing, and trying to outsource the peace of God with a pill, a bottle, an escape of sin, luxuries, comforts. If we worry about nothing, if we pray about everything, something supernatural happens, and the peace of God will, float, will flood our heart and mind. I'm reminded of Horatio Spafford, who was a great entrepreneur in Chicago. It's good friends with the great evangelist D.L. Moody back in the late 1870s. The great fire of Chicago wiped out his entire real estate portfolio. Well, D.L. Moody was conducting a crusade in London and the Spaffords, Horatio and his wife and his four kids were going to help Moody in this crusade. So Spafford had to stay back in in Chicago and tidy up a few details, but he sent his wife and four kids on ahead of him and he was going to catch up with them in London. Then Horatio Spafford received a telegram from his wife. It said, saved alone. Two words, saved alone. Somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the the ship carrying Horatio's wife and four kids collided with a steamship, and only his wife survived. The four kids perished in the Atlantic Ocean. So Spafford immediately boards the ship and starts traveling to London, and when they were about over the, the exact coordinates of the collision, uh, Horatio Spafford had his hand on the rail and he was looking out over the water and the captain of the ship came over to him and said, this is uh, about the coordinates of your daughter's grave, their icy Atlantic grave. He experienced right then, right there, the peace of God. Not through the removal of problems, but through the addition of power. And he testifies that right there, peace flooded 
my heart and mind. And he went into his cabin and wrote the words to this song. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. This is the peace of God that, how does Paul describe it in Philippians? That passes all understanding. I was listening to a sermon by, by Rick Warren. He's a pastor out in California. And he, it was a sermon from 2015. And the year before, his son had committed suicide. And a year later, he's standing in front of his congregation and talking about that season. And he was saying, it was the most difficult season of my entire life. He said, for some time, my son struggled with depression. And, of course, we prayed for him and we tried to help him. And, but he still struggled with depression and he took his life. He said, I can tell you this, though. There was a peace in my mind. There was a peace in my heart that did not make sense. It was the peace that passes all understanding. And he said, so I'm able to stand in front of you now and testify that there's a peace that's greater than our problems. And this is the kind of peace that God wants to give you today. It's a peace with God through trust and the cross of Christ. It's the peace of God as the Spirit of Christ floods your soul and gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding. And not only that, it's a peace with others. A peace with others. You see, if I have a, a hot cup of coffee that's filled to the very tip and I'm walking and trying not to spill it and somebody bumps into me, there's nothing I can do to prevent that coffee from spilling out. Or if I have this hot cup of coffee to the very tip and I'm driving down the road and I have to stop suddenly or I go over a speed bump, there's nothing I can do to prevent that coffee from spilling over. And in the same way, when we are filled up with ourselves, then when we enter into some sort of relational conflict or somebody frustrates us or somebody at work is not behaving uh, like Mother Teresa or something of this nature, then the flesh immediately spills over. And we fight fire with fire and we're angry, we're impatient, we're frustrated. But there's an alternative. And this is to be filled up with something besides ourselves. And this is to be filled up with the Spirit of Christ. Watch this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Nine fruit of the Spirit flow from our lives. Love, joy, did you see that one? Peace. What is being filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it having more of the Holy Spirit? No, at the moment you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have all the Holy Spirit you'll ever have. But... Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit having all of you. And when the Holy Spirit has all of you because you wake up and you count the costs and you surrender your life to Christ and you spend time with Jesus and you deepen your relationship with Christ, then you become filled with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit has more and more of you. So instead of somebody bumping into you and anger and frustration and hostility flowing from your life, Peace and joy and love flow out of your life. 
We can't go straight there, can we? We can't run to third base first. We have to go to first base. First of all, we must have peace with God. This eternal, spiritual peace. And as a result, we have the peace of God. This internal, emotional peace that Horatio Spafford testified about. And then we can have peace with others. This external, relational peace. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 10 testifies of what it's going to be like when Christ returns. What it's going to be like when Jesus establishes His kingdom on earth. Now, I encourage you guys to vote your biblical conscience and, 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 I'll, and I'll speak up for things like abortion that in any time politics infringes upon Scripture, I will stand up for truth. I realize there's separation of the church and state, but when politics infringes upon Scripture, we don't surrender that aspect of truth. We stand up and we count the cost. And whatever aspect of truth that politicians may decide to make political, we don't submit, we don't relent those grounds. We stand up for truth and we speak for truth. But I'm not terribly passionate about politics because it pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. And no matter how great the United States of America has been or can be as we, as we pursue our creed and live out the Constitution of the United States, it still pales in comparison to when Jesus Christ establishes His kingdom. Watch what happens when Jesus Christ looks at the Son and says, thank you for your service, I no longer have need of you, and Christ Himself is the light of the world. In verse 6 of Isaiah Chapter 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. What politician can do that? And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. Watch this. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the grass. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the cobra's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy on all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the wa- as, as the waters cover the sea. See, I've got a glimpse of when Jesus Christ establishes His kingdom. Every valley of despair will be raised up. Every mountain of pride will be leveled. And the child will put his hand in a cobra's den and not be harmed on all of God's holy mountain. This is the peace of God that Jesus promised when He returns to establish His kingdom. Which is why we should uh, not, not be in such dismay if your candidate is not elected to office, but rather allow your gaze to be lifted up towards heaven as the book of Revelation closes the entire Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and establish your peace, a permanent peace on earth. But until then, the church is God's embassy, if you will, in foreign territory. And we are to function and operate with the peace of God that passes all understanding. And we are not to be a reservoir of this peace, but we are to be a river of this peace. 
you can have peace with God, and that will give you the peace of God, and that will give you peace with others. Let me give you three action steps to walk in this peace. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. Three action steps. First, come to Christ. Come to Christ right now. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. So often we say, I don't feel like coming to Christ. I want to come to Christ when I, when I get myself together, when I get my act together, then I'll come to Christ. That's like somebody saying, I'll go to the emergency room when I feel better. I'll go to the emergency room when I feel better. Jesus says, no, I'm speaking specifically to those who are weary and heavy burdened. Jesus says, come to me. How do we come to Christ? We call out to Christ. From a place of humility, independence, the most theologically profound and powerful prayer, which is a fragrance and incense and a delight to the Lord, is from a broken and contrite heart that realize they're helpless in and of themselves. When that heart cries out, help, God, Help. Help. You realize that is a beautiful, powerful prayer. You say, well, don't have to quote scripture, don't have to be poetic, don't have to be eloquent. No, no, no. Men, women on earth do that to try to impress you, not to try to please God. God says the excessive words, orator in your prayers means nothing to me. Jesus gave an illustration of how to pray. He said there was a Pharisee, people that the world really esteemed. They were poetic. They were quoting Scripture. They were praying. Their voice was resounding above everybody else, and everybody was impressed with their prayers. And then there was a tax collector, a known sinner, who looked down, who beat his chest, and said, God, have mercy on me. Jesus said, whose prayer was heard? It wasn't the eloquent one. It was the broken prayer, the humble prayer. Rather than worrying about everything, and praying about nothing, worry about nothing, pray about everything. And how do you pray? You pray, help, God, help. And the Spirit descends to deliver with power and authority when a prayer arises from brokenness and humility. Help, God, in Jesus' name, help. What's giving you anxiety? What's filling your heart with sorrow? What is bringing depression into your life? Let me ask you, are you worrying about everything, praying little? Or are you worrying about nothing and praying a lot? How do you pray? Cry out to Jesus. Help. Help. Come to Christ. Secondly, receive from Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. Take my yoke. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. You hear what Jesus said? Take. In other words, receive, freely receive from Christ. You don't have to bring anything to the table. You just come to him with your brokenness and your weariness and you just say, help. And Jesus said, take from me. Interesting, if I were writing the scripture rather than Christ, I would say, take from me for I have power and authority. Take from me. For I have eternal might. In this particular passage, when he's writing to the weary and to the wounded, to the heavy burden, to the broken, he says, come to me and then receive from me, for I am gentle 
and humble at heart. Why would Jesus accentuate His gentleness, His meekness, and His humility to empower the weary and the broken? I believe it's this. The reason that pressures mount on top of our shoulders so that we can't bear them any longer. And the reason that anxiety begins filling our heart and, and, and worries are engraved into our thought process is because of the opposite of gentleness, aggression, and the opposite of humility, pride. In other words, we think that it depends upon us. Somewhere along the way, our heart and mind get skewed. We know God loves us. We know He died for us. We know we're Christians, but, but, but we think that this mountain depends upon us. This problem is up to us. I've got to solve this. And Jesus says, take from me, receive from me, learn from me. I am gentle. I am humble of heart. And you need to repent of pride and you need to walk in humility. It's not about you and it's not up to you. It's for my glory and it's going to be by my power. Thirdly, expect Christ. He says, and you will. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me all who are weary and heavy burden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Interesting word, yoke, isn't it? What's a yoke? The middle of an egg? No. You see two cows together, two oxen together, and they're plowing a land. There's a wooden harness that yokes them together. You see two horses, and they're, 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 they're pulling a load, and there's a wooden harness around them, and it yokes them together. What does a yoke do? A yoke lightens the load. It says, come to me. Let me lighten your load. Give me your pressures. Give me your problems. Give me your worries. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble at heart. You need to be gentle and humble at heart. Walk in meekness. Walk in humility. It's not about you. It's not up to you. It's about His glory and it's up to His power and authority. And then you will find rest for your souls. This is the third action step. You will find rest for your souls. And by the way, this isn't something that you do uh, once, once a Sunday. This is something you do every morning. This is something you do throughout the day. You walk through this pattern of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. You're always coming to Christ. You're always receiving from Christ. You're, all, you're always lightening your load by unloading it upon His shoulders. You're always learning from His humility, His gentleness. You're always reminding yourself it's not about you. It's not up to you. It's about Christ. It's up to Christ. And then expect Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. Come to Christ, receive from Christ, and expect Christ. This word expect is hope. Hope in Christ. If you would stand with me. When I was, uh, when I was going through college, I re remember watching a documentary, and a cheetah was chasing down a gazelle. And I was pulling for the gazelle because I was actually eating cereal while I was watching this documentary and I didn't want to see the cheetah dive into the gazelle's jugular, rip it apart, and plunge into its heart. I, just, I was eating, right? And plus, I, you know, I'm, I'm for life and I just wanted to see the gazelle get away. But then the documentary pulled a fast one on me and it panned to a shot of the cheetah's cubs. Cute little cubs. 
Now, the cheat is fast, like zero to 60 in just a couple of seconds. And the commentator said that in this fight to the life and the death, I mean, the cheat is facing the gazelle, zero to, zero to 60. The gazelle's pretty fast, too. They, they had these 90-degree turns. Boom. I mean, it was an adventure. But that cheetah, in this fight, in this chase for supper, will burn up so much of its lean body fat that if it doesn't, chase, if it doesn't catch the gazelle, it will not have enough protein and energy to chase down another dinner and all its cubs will starve to death. So now I didn't know who to cheer for anymore. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is if you want to live, whether you're a cheetah or whether you're a gazelle, you better wake up running. And so, it is, so it is for a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to have joy, if you want to have peace that we've talked about, peace like a river, you better wake up hoping every morning. What is hope? Hope is expecting. Hope is expecting that Christ will descend to deliver. Hope is expecting that Jesus will move the mountain that blocks your path or give you the strength to overcome it. Hope is expecting that Christ will bring beauty out of the ashes. Hope is expecting. Are you expecting? Every morning, we must come to Christ, receive from Christ, learn from Christ, expect Christ. In order to experience the peace of God, peace with God, and peace with others. We had a Bible study at mine and Karen's house a few nights ago. and We had a fire inside. It was cold out, so we had a fire inside. We had a fire outside around the fire pit. We were all inside. We were talking about God's grace. We had everybody write down something on a napkin, something that they were struggling with, a guilt, a regret, a sorrow, a fear. Write it down. And then we all went outside to the fire pit. We all stood around it, read some scripture, put that napkin on the fire. We watched it dissolve into ashes. So we're going to leave it here on the altar of Christ's consuming love. And somebody said, quoting Isaiah 61, and believe that God will give us beauty for ashes. There's something that you need to leave on the altar of Christ's consuming love. What is it? A sorrow, a hurt, a disappointment, a burden, a mountain. I I wish we had a fire up here and we could walk through that, but, but we have an altar. And I want to invite you to come forward, kneel, and pray, God, I leave it here on the altar of your consuming love. And knowing that Christ takes that burden, he takes that brokenness, that fear, that sin, that regret, that sorrow, he burns it into ashes, and he promises in Isaiah 61, whatever you put on the altar, he will give you beauty for ashes. Let's wake up running. Let's expect it. Somehow, someway, he will give us beauty for ashes. It doesn't mean that we're giddy about the loss. It doesn't mean that, 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 that it was a light thing. But it means that we have hope in our sorrow. God will give us beauty for the loss. In some way that's so inconceivable, in some way that's so supernatural that it will make the loss worthwhile. That's the scriptures. For our present suffering is not even comparable. It's light and momentary compared to the eternal and weighty glory that this light and momentary suffering is achieving for us.
So in our response time, I just want to invite you to come forward and let the peace of God flood your heart and mind. Lay something at the altar. Walk away with this peace, knowing he will give you beauty for ashes. Would you bow your heads? How many of you in this holiday season need the peace of God? Raise your hand. After 2020, I think we all need the peace of God. He's willing. Are you willing to come to him? Take from him. And expect him to give you beauty for ashes. Let's respond.